Hi, thanks for joining us. You're listening to Tell It From Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, with the goal of engaging the city and impacting the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's message is from our senior pastor, Dr. Abraham Joseph. If you want to know more about Calvary Baptist Church and its ministries, head over to www.cbcnyc.org. Let's go look to God in prayer as we look to his word. Our Father and our God, uh, we come before you this morning as those whom you have brought to yourself as uh, as your children, as uh, your servants, as worshipers. God, and you did that at a great cost to yourself through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whom we are redeemed, uh, in whom uh, we are clothed with his righteousness so that we can indeed come before you. Uh, with great boldness because we stand before you in Christ Jesus our Lord and we come before you in your spirit so that we can indeed worship you according to spirit and truth. Uh, God, this worship uh, we offer unto you this morning, uh, we also receive as something that transforms us to be the kind of people who could be the children of God. I pray that you would form us after Christ by your spirit through your word this morning for we ask in the name of your son, our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. We are back in the Gospel of Mark. Remember the Gospel of Mark? Yay! Yay. <laughs> Somebody's happy. Uh, uh, yes, we took about seven weeks off in the summer to look at the book of uh, Psalms. Uh, we looked at uh, seven favorite Psalms of your pastors. And uh, we are back in the Gospel of Mark, and we will continue here till Advent comes. And uh, then we will go through Advent and Christmas and then come back to the Gospel of Mark. Um, This morning, we come to a a pivotal passage in the gospel that marks a a turning point. Uh, It's the transfiguration of our Lord. I happened to find an interesting picture on the internet, so I thought I'd use that as a background. Um, But before we go to the passage, I have a couple of questions. Uh, I assume that many or most of you here uh, have trusted in Jesus Christ. If you have not, I invite you to do so this morning. But those of you who have trusted in Jesus Christ, uh, what are the benefits of trusting in Jesus? Benefits that you already realize. Benefits that you're looking forward to. Heaven. Heaven. Eternal life. Blessings. Blessings. No more tears. tears. Something you already experienced as a benefit of the Lord Jesus. Peace. Forgiveness. Living in a mansion. You already are? Guidance. Seeing loved ones. Seeing loved ones. Yes, again. Knowing that you do not stand alone. Knowing that you not stand alone. Um, we stand in God and with His people. Amen. Lots of benefits, and I'm sure uh, if you uh, think you can tell me more. Uh, but how many of you see uh, suffering for the sake of Jesus as a benefit of following Him? Living on earth is suffering. I'm not speaking of any suffering. I'm suffering, uh, suffering for the sake of Jesus. Well, this morning we're going to look at a passage uh, which uh, reveals the glory of our, Jesus, our Lord Jesus. And, and, and glory is uh, our, our preferred default way of life. Uh, we want life to be glorious. Some people, even when you ask them, how are you doing? They say, glorious, brother. Uh, <laughs> 
uh, I thought we thought we were waiting for that to come. Uh, uh, but but the, that context for this passage today is one of suffering. Uh, it's uh, it's bookended about the suffering of this glorious Lord Jesus. And for the people who encounter this glorious Lord Jesus, who's also the suffering servant, uh, those two things coming together didn't make sense. How could one, how could glory and suffering be together in the same person? Uh, scripture, unlike this, us this morning, does see scripture, uh, does see suffering as a benefit uh, that we uh, experience for the sake of Jesus. In Philippians, for example, Paul tells us that it has been granted to us for the sake of Christ. Not only do we believe in him, we welcome that. Thank you, God, for giving me the benefit of believing in the Lord Jesus, by which I receive all these other blessings. But Paul goes on to say that it has also been granted to suffer for his sake. And all that comes from the hand of God is good. So if he has granted us to suffer for the sake of Jesus, that must be a benefit. Same thing Peter, whom we'll encounter in the passage today. He says in 1 Peter 4, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Rejoice now in the sufferings that you share with Jesus, because you will again rejoice when he comes in glory, and we will share his glory. And we see this experienced in life in, in, the, uh, in the book of Acts in chapter 5, when the apostles who are uh, arrested, and then they, they find... Uh, that uh, they, they couldn't charge them with anything, so they flogged them and they released them. And we are told that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Suffering, finding joy in suffering for the sake of Jesus as a benefit of the gospel, how could that be? We are in the third section of the Gospel of Mark, if you had forgotten this outline. It's that uh, section where Jesus, having completed his ministry in Galilee, where he had uh, taught with authority, uh, driven out demons, cured lepers, gives, given sight to the blind, made the lame walk, uh, forgiven sins, and even raised the dead. Uh, he's now moving to Jerusalem. And uh, Mark presents this section in 822 to 1052, bookended by two accounts of, the, of two blind men receiving sight. We saw the first one earlier, where Jesus heals this blind man, and at the, at the first touch, he only sees as though uh, men were trees. He doesn't see clearly, and it takes a second touch before he would see clearly. At the end of this section in chapter uh, 10, 46 to 52, we have the healing of another blind man, Bartimaeus. Uh, Bartimaeus rightly recognizes Jesus as the son of David, uh, and he is healed, and he's healed fully and completely, and he follows after Jesus. In between these two accounts, uh, Mark tells the story of Jesus' prediction of his passion, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. And with every one of these three predictions, the disciples respond without understanding. For the first time, we saw that already last time, where Jesus, after the confession of Peter that uh, uh, he is the Christ, uh, announces publicly that as the Son of Man, he will suffer, be rejected, uh, uh, and uh, crucified and, and, and die at the hands of his enemies. And Peter takes him aside and rebukes him after having just confessed him as Christ. And in the second uh, announcement of his, his passion, in, in chapter 9, uh, we see uh, that the disciples had been talking about among themselves about who among them is the greatest. 
And then the third time when Jesus announces his uh, death and his suffering and his resurrection, uh, James and John come to him and ask if they could sit at his right and left hand when he comes in glory. They have completely missed the point about what it, who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. So Jesus teaches them about discipleship, even as he did in the, the account after Peter's uh, um, rebuke, that Jesus rebukes them and tells them what it means to be his disciples. And Will the disciples be restored to sight about who Jesus is as these two blind men were restored? Or will they continue to see men as trees? That is how uh, a lack of understanding about the person of Jesus. See, we can't follow a Jesus we do not know. It is important we, we know who this Jesus is. And Jesus continues to reveal himself. And this morning in our passage, the Father even reveals the Son. In order to get to our passage, especially since we have been away for about seven weeks or so. Uh, let's catch a quick um, summary of what's gone before. Uh, we saw in chapter 8, verse 31, uh, and before, Jesus asked that crucial question, the answer to which determines our destiny. Uh, having asked them, who do people say that I am? Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers rightly, you are the Christ. Peter, who usually gets things wrong, gets it right. And then Jesus explicitly states his mission. He must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And this is completely offensive and unacceptable for Peter. The Messiah is supposed to kill his enemies, not be killed by his enemies. The Messiah should make the enemies suffer, not suffer himself at their hands. Jesus, in turn, rebukes Peter for being aligned with Satan and not the purposes of God. And then he teaches them what it means to be his disciple. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And then he makes this promise in chapter 9, verse 1, which is the immediate context for our passage this morning. Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Peter's misunderstanding must be corrected. The disciples, see Peter is just a spokesman for the other disciples because when Jesus rebukes him, he doesn't just look at Peter, he turns and looks at them because they share Peter's misunderstanding. It's just that Peter is the one the courage to speak up and speak his mind, which is in the wrong place. Peter needs to understand that Jesus' prediction of his suffering, his death, his resurrection are according to God's will for the Messiah. Peter and the disciples must understand that the suffering and shame suffered by the Messiah are not incompatible with his glory. And finally, God must reveal to them that Jesus is much more than just the Christ. He's the Son of God. Uh, divine glory is inherently his, and no suffering and no shame can rob him of his glory. Will the disciples be cured of their blindness? Will they see Jesus for who he is? Well, let's find out. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. You will see it in two parts, up the mountain for the transfiguration and down the mountain for instruction. 
We read in verses uh, 2 through 4, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. After six days. See, Mark is not known for uh, specific indicators of time. He usually uh, hurries up his narrative with words like immediately or phrases like after some days or in those days and so on. But here he gets very specific after six days. Six days after when? Uh, six days after the prediction in chapter 9 verse 1, uh, our, our, our passage ought to be seen as a fulfillment of what Jesus had predicted in verse 9-1, that, that some of, chapter 9 verse 1, that some of them who were, in, in their, uh, who were there before him would not taste death till they see the kingdom of God in coming in power. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. These were the first three that he called to be his disciples. They were witnesses when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, they alone went with him when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. They alone will accompany him to Gethsemane, where they will witness his agony, albeit very sleepily. They are the privileged inner circle who alone get to catch a glimpse of the Lord's glory before his death and his resurrection in our passage today. They are the some who are standing here that Jesus had predicted would see the kingdom of God come in power. The rest of the verses will tell us what they saw. Almost the entire story is told from their perspective. What they saw, how they responded, their fear. A voice uh, that speaks to them, revealing Jesus' identity and instructing them to listen to him. It's a glorious privilege. Uh, will these privileges lead to a better understanding of the person and mission of Jesus than the other disciples? Jesus led them up a high mountain by themselves. Uh, mountains are usually places of divine encounter. The mountain here is not named, but the description seems to suggest this is Mount Hermon, one of the highest mountains in that region, and also very uh, close to Caesarea Philippi, where Peter had just made his confession concerning Christ in the previous passage. Uh, if mountains are where people encounter God, it appears that Jesus is confident that these men will, will have an encounter with God an encounter that will further reveal to them who he was and why he had come. And we are told he was transfigured before them. The word that Mark uses uh, to refer to the transfiguration is the word from which we, receive, we, uh, we uh, derive that English word, metamorphosis. It, it generally means to, to change, to be changed in form. Uh, Mark will primarily talk about the appearance of his garments, but he is careful to note that it is Jesus himself who is transfigured. Not the passive voice. Jesus is being acted upon. It's the Father who briefly draws aside the veil of the incarnation so that his companions may see his divine glory, a glory that is eternally his, but is veiled in the incarnation. This is the glory of which Paul spoke of in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and following, when he said, Jesus who existed in the form of God. Now the glory that is revealed is the glory of the form of God. Jesus himself speaks of this glory in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The transfiguration is a brief glimpse of the glory of the true identity of Jesus. The glory of the kingdom of God come in power, which Jesus says they would see, is none, none other than the glory of the king himself. And they see 
Jesus in his glory. It's a preview of the promised uh, glory of God's kingdom. His clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Uh, Matthew and Luke, in addition to speaking of a shining garment, they first speak of the altered face of Jesus, that it shone like the sun. Uh, Mark only speaks of his clothing, but, but radiant garments are usually indicative of the divine. Even uh, we saw in the, the Son of Man passages, uh, we need to remember what happened in Daniel chapter 7, when the Son of Man appears before the Ancient of Days, and it is there the Ancient of Days who is garbed in clothing that is white as snow. Uh, God is told in the Psalms that he, he wears light as his garment. And interestingly, martyrs in the book of Revelation are also clothed in shining white garments. The point about that no one on earth could bleach them so white is to indicate that there was no earthly explanation for what they just saw on the mountain. Jesus, as the writer to the Hebrews puts it, is the radiance of the glory of God. And there appeared with them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Uh, we have already had numerous allusions here, I don't know if you heard them, of Moses going up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. Even there, in Exodus chapter 24, God's glory cover, covers the mountain for six days, and on the seventh day, Moses is called up. There, too, a cloud covers the mountain. Uh, in in 24.1, uh, three men are named who accompany Moses, besides uh, uh, 70 others who are not named. God's voice is heard speaking from the cloud. Uh, and after the encounter, as Moses descends from the, uh, from the mountain, his face shines with the external glory, the reflected glory of the God that he has just met with. Well, if those allusions are not sufficient, now we are told that Elijah and Moses appeared on the mountain along with Jesus and were talking to him. Uh, Mark doesn't tell us what they were talking about. Uh, Luke does, that they were talking about his exodus, his, his departure uh, through the cross and the resurrection. But what's the, what's, the, what's the significance of the appearance of these two renowned Old Testament figures? There are, there are, there are various parallels here to them and to who Jesus is. Uh, they represent the law and the prophets. Uh, Moses represents the law and Elijah the prophets. Elijah is not a writing prophet. Uh, but when we think about prophets, they are not just people who foretell what God is going to do, but they are people who are primarily those who call God's people back to covenant faithfulness. And Elijah was that. And he was the first prophet. Uh, they both saw or encountered God on mountains, and they were faithful servants of God when most of God's people were unfaithful. They suffered for their faithfulness. They were rejected by the people, but they were ultimately vindicated by God. And for the purposes of this passage and for the gospel, they both make this unexpected or unusual exit from life. Uh, Elijah, we all know that he was caught up in this chariot of uh, fire. Uh, we are told that Moses, God took Moses up the mountain and Moses died and God buried him. Uh, but a few verses later, we are told that and Moses was with the Lord. And Jewish tradition often took that as Moses also didn't die and he was taken up alive by God. So here we have two people who have very unusual exits from life, and uh, Jesus speaks of his own exit, but his is through death, but with the resurrection. Most importantly for our passage, uh, these two are eschatological figures, figures that are to appear at the end of the ages. Moses had said uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your own, uh, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Those, that's, those words we will hear uh, from God himself. 
listen to him. Same is true of Elijah. We read in, the, in, in, in Malachi in chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. Uh, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Before the end of the ages when God comes in judgment and blessing, Elijah was expected. So two of the expected icons of the end of the ages have appeared before them. And Jesus had predicted six days earlier that they would see the kingdom of God in power. Is this it? No wonder Peter reacts as he does in the next couple of verses. We are told in verses 5 and 6, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. For they were terrified. So Peter does Peter in these two verses. So, <laughs> Rabbi, it is good that we are here. The first problem, he calls Jesus Rabbi. This is the guy who recently confessed Jesus as the Christ. Now he has seen the transfigured Jesus, and that in the august company of these two, uh, one of two of the most renowned figures in, in the history of his people, and all he can manage is Rabbi? See, even Peter ought to know that the one that he's speaking of is no mere Rabbi. He will soon learn that the one he's uh, speaking to is, is not just the rabbi, not just the Christ, but someone greater than that, someone infinitely superior to Elijah and Moses. And then he blurts out, it's good that we are here. This is great. This is fantastic. This is a Facebook Live moment. You know, <laughs> ATM, uh, kingdom of God come in power. Yeah. I mean, in one sense, it's the most natural response you will expect to hear from someone who has experienced something as wonderful as what Peter just experienced. But Peter's response falls so far short of the lesson that he is to learn from this experience. That doesn't stop him from continuing to expose his ignorance. Some people just need to stop talking, right? <laughs> like sometimes me preaching over here. Uh, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. We're not told why he wants to make three tents and tabernacles, uh, but context does clue us in. Uh, maybe he remembered Moses and the Feast of the Tabernacles, where, which they celebrated annually to remember their time in the wilderness when they lived in tents and God himself dwelt among them in a tent. Uh, but notice his first mis misperception of Jesus. After calling him rabbi, that was the first one, he, here he puts Jesus at par with Moses and Elijah. One tent for you, one tent for Moses, and one tent for Elijah. These people belong in, two, three, in a very different categories. But we know more from the previous passage. There Jesus had predicted his suffering and his death and his resurrection. And Peter didn't take that well. Peter rebuked Jesus. He didn't think that kind of talk was becoming of the Messiah. Like I said earlier, the Messiah ought to kill his enemies, not be killed by his enemies. Who would want to follow a Messiah who was rejected, suffered, killed? And he rebukes the Messiah, whom he had just confessed. But what he's seeing before his eyes now... Now that's what he's talking about. That's what the Messiah and the kingdom of God ought to look like. This is how the kingdom of God ought to come. All glory and no cross. It's more like it. Give me the glory any day. Jesus, let's pitch tents and perpetuate this moment. Maybe he wants to build tents for the dignitaries so that they may be comfortable and not exposed to the mountain sun. But more likely he wants the moment to linger, to prolong the experience. 
I mean, let's be honest, who wouldn't want an experience like that to last, right? Especially given what waits them when they come down the mountain and head to Jerusalem. Why go down the mountain and carry a cross when you can stay on the mountain in the tent and can keep experiencing glory? And we are told that he did this because he did not know what to say. Sometimes people tell me, you know, in your sermons, you've got to have very practical applications. Well, here's one. When you don't know what to say, the wise thing to do is not to say anything. Yes. It's a very valuable life lesson from Peter. Well, he has to say something. But we are told further that it's not just him. All three are terrified. Uh, Peter is the spokesman for the terrified three. The others, maybe they're smarter. They don't say anything. Uh, but it's uh, every, very evident that they too were lost in their misunderstanding of what was just transpiring before their eyes. They're slow to realize uh, what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, they, they, they don't understand who it is that they are following him, who it is that they are following and will be revealed to them next. The question is, will they get it? And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they saw... They no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Uh, clouds in scripture are often indicative of God's presence. A pillar of cloud uh, followed them when they left Egypt and, and crossed the Red Sea and went into the wilderness. Uh, more likely, we, we are to call uh, to our memory the, the cloud that enveloped Mount Sinai when God summoned Moses to the mountain. Uh, a cloud filled the temple at Solomon's dedication when God's presence came into the Holy of Holies. And a voice came out of the cloud. God's presence is further conveyed through the voice that came out. This is the same voice that, from heaven that spoke at Jesus' baptism. The message is the same here, but with an added instruction. Uh, what has changed is the audience. At the baptism, the voice spoke to an audience of one, Jesus. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Uh, there the voice from heaven was the father assuring the son uh, of his identity and his father's delight in him as he begins his public ministry. The one who will teach authoritatively, the one who will cast out demons, the one who will cure lepers and give sight to the blind, make the lame walk, heal all kinds of diseases, even raise the dead. He is none other than the beloved son of God. As readers, we have known this from verse 1 of chapter 1. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Uh, it was further attested to us because we read what the voice from heaven said uh, to, to Jesus at his baptism. But here is the first time the disciples hear who this Jesus is uh, from God himself. See, demons had identified here him before as the Holy One of God or the Son of the Most High God. But generally they are not reliable sources. You know, uh, here the voice of God will reveal to them who Jesus is. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. See, they may have been willing to conclude that the one who did those mighty miracles, works of power, uh, was the Son of God, but they, would they believe that the one who was going to suffer, be rejected, and die at the hands of his enemies, and be raised from the dead? Could he be the Son of God? See, the Father's voice assures them that the Messiah's suffering, the Messiah's death, and his, and his resurrection, they're not the denial of his sonship, but an affirmation that it is the Father's will that his son would suffer and die and be raised from the dead. The disciples need to know who it is that was summoning them to follow him. They need to understand the full identity of the Messiah, that he is God's son. And here the voice of God himself reveals Jesus' identity to them. Will they get it? 
see the truth of his identity, that his, his sonship uh, is necessary for discipleship. We can't follow the one we do not know. He's, just not, he's not just another Moses or an Elijah. He's the son of God, the beloved of the Father. And the instruction is to listen to him. Uh, again, echoes what we heard from Moses in chapter 8, Deuteronomy 18:15. The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me. Uh, it is to him you shall listen. Uh, see, the entire account so far has been about what they saw. Jesus hasn't said a word yet. You know, God spoke, Peter spoke. But the instruction from the Father is to listen to him. Uh, what is the Father speaking of? Uh, uh, yes, it, it could refer to all that Jesus has taught so far, but more specifically it relates to what Jesus had just declared in the previous passage, that he is indeed the Christ. His mission in Jerusalem is to suffer, die, and be raised from the dead on the third day. Uh, that, that is how he would inaugurate the kingdom of God, that those who follow him must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him, that they must not be ashamed of him, that they must be willing to lose their lives for, the sake of, for his sake and the sake of the gospel if they want to save it. Uh, that those who follow him are assured of saving their lives and sharing in his glory when he returns. Listen to him. What he says is true. Uh, God has introduced his son to them. They must listen to him as they listen to God himself. Every, the Jewish confession every day was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, God is one. The Lord is one. Here the instruction is, Hear, O Israel, to the Son of God. Listen to his instruction on his suffering, his death, his resurrection. Listen to his instruction on what it means to follow him. And suddenly looking around, they, saw, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Elijah and Moses disappear as mysteriously as they had appeared. Jesus' glory is once again veiled. They saw no one but Jesus, but they had heard enough to know that he is all they had to see. More than that, it is to him they ought to listen. We also see the supremacy of our Lord. He alone remains. It is He, not Moses or Elijah, who will bring in God's reign, God's kingdom. And He will do it through His suffering, through His death, through His resurrection. See, that's not how the kingdoms of men are brought into being. But this kingdom is no kingdom of men. It's the kingdom of God, whose power is exercised through the weakness of death and resurrection. This is the wisdom of God that is foolishness to men. Christ crucified is the foolishness of God that is wiser than men. The weakness of God that is stronger than men. Will Peter and the other disciples learn the will of God for his son, the Messiah? Will they realize that the path to glory proceeds through the way of the cross? They saw only Jesus. He's all that they needed to see. He alone is the Messiah. He alone is the Son of God. He alone will walk the way of the cross to return to his glory. They head down the mountain. They were coming down the mountain, and he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So far, Jesus had said nothing in this passage, and his first words to them are that they should be silent. See, as much as he had told earlier that those who were healed from their diseases or those who were freed from demons, uh, that they ought to be silent about who he is. Uh, so also these disciples are forbidden to say anything about what they had seen. But for the first time, uh, we, we see a terminus to this instruction to be silent. They are to tell no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. What? 
How can they keep silent about what they had just heard, they witnessed? You know, the, 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 the gag order, the muzzling order there, like before, was, not, uh, was because they did not yet fully understand who Jesus is and what was his mission. See, Jesus doesn't entertain false witness. Uh, it's very clear from the very next verse, they didn't understand who he, he is and what he had come to do. Uh, they don't understand that suffering must precede glory. They don't understand that suffering and glory are not incompatible for the one who is the Messiah, the Son of God. They don't yet realize that the pathway to the glory that they had just glimpsed was through a cross. Jesus does not want them to prematurely proclaim that which they do not understand, hence the gag order. But they will finally understand what they saw on the, what they saw on the mountain after his death and his resurrection. Then they can proclaim. This is very evident in, in Peter's uh, letters in chapter 5, verse 1. Um, he, he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be re revealed. He gets it. I already saw his suffering, and I'm going to see his glory. But more importantly, uh, he, he un that he understood what happened at the mountain after the death and resurrection. We see that in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. They kept the matter to themselves, unlike the others who were instructed to, dial, to silence, but went and spread the news so that people, Jesus couldn't even go from place to place and was crowded. These disciples obey uh, and keep what they have seen to themselves as instructed. But there's another reason why they keep silent. Uh, they do talk among themselves, even if they don't tell others, is they do not understand what Jesus had said about him rising from the dead. They understand dying, but they don't understand what rising from the dead means. See, Jews at that time were aware of the general resurrection that was to come at the end of the ages. Daniel, for example, in chapter 12, verse 2, prophesies that at the end of the ages, God will raise up all the dead, the righteous to eternal life and the wicked to eternal judgment. So they knew that there was a judgment to come at the end of the age, but Jesus was not speaking of the general resurrection at the end of the age, but he was speaking of his resurrection in time. The Son of Man will rise from the dead. And they don't understand what this personal resurrection before the end of the age could mean. It was just inconceivable to them. And we see the same confusion, for example, in Martha, uh, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, and the disciples were lost in their misunderstanding, but thankfully uh, they asked Jesus about this, albeit rather indirectly. So they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Not about, we don't understand this, but why do the scribes say that? Right? Uh, kind of like my students who, when they disagree with me, wouldn't say that they don't agree with me. They would say, but that expert says this. Uh, <laughs> um, so the disciples had just seen Elijah with Jesus. They knew about Malachi's prophecy that the Elijah must come at the, at the end of the age uh, when God will come in judgment and blessing. They knew the scribal tradition that expected the return of Elijah before the coming day of the Lord at the end of the ages, which will launch that glorious messianic kingdom. 
They were confused. How does Jesus' suffering and resurrection fit into this scheme of things as they understood it? If Elijah had to come before the Messiah and then comes the restoration of all things and Elijah hasn't come, how could Jesus be the Messiah and, and a Messiah that needs to die and rise again? They still had no room for understanding uh, that Messiah and suffering could go together. So Jesus explains to them, and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. See, Scripture interprets Scripture. When you don't understand what a particular passage teaches, uh, you need to look at other passages to gain a fuller understanding of what that passage says. So these disciples had fully focused on the return of, the Elijah, of Elijah and the restoration of all things, and they didn't see how the suffering of Messiah could fit into this. Uh, Jesus agrees with them that the Elijah, Elijah must come before the restoration of all things, but he seeks to expand their understanding. Yes, Elijah does come first, and he would go on to say that Elijah has indeed come, and then clarifies how restoration takes place. It will not be through Elijah's appearance, but through the suffering, death, and resurrection of the Son of Man, the Messiah. He answers the first question concerning the restoration of all things before he speaks of Elijah. Uh, so he asks this question uh, to, to, to get the disciples to reevaluate their understanding of Elijah and his restoration. How is it written, yes, Malachi spoke of the return of Elijah, but how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? You can't just look at Elijah. You also have to, be, to see what is written about the Son of Man in Isaiah 53, in Psalm 22, Psalm 118. See, the restoration of all things must be preceded not just by the return of Elijah, but more importantly, by the suffering, death, and resurrection of the Messiah, through whom will come the restoration of all things. Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Jesus declares that Elijah has already come. Mark doesn't make it explicit like Matthew does that Jesus is speaking of John the Baptist. Uh, the reader is aware uh, that he is speaking of John the Baptist who, who came to prepare the way of the Lord, Jesus. As the forerunner of the Messiah, he suffered and died at the hands of the rulers of the age. And now the Messiah himself will suffer that same end at the hands of the rulers. But unlike John, he will be raised from the dead. And at his return... The promised restoration of all things will commence, as Peter testifies in Acts chapter 2, that all things await his restoration when he returns. So Jesus was transfigured. The disciples saw it. They didn't understand it. What does that mean? Well, the transfiguration of our Lord was primarily for the benefit of the disciples and therefore for us. A lesson that glory and suffering are not incompatible or that suffering was contrary to the will of God. A lesson on the identity of Jesus, whom they and we follow. Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the glorious one, and yet at the same time, he's also the suffering servant, the one who bears our sin and shame. Uh, those who see who he is only in his glory and not in his suffering don't really know him. Uh, Luther argues that, that a person is not a true theologian if he's able to recognize God as God only when he encounters God in the trappings of all glory. A true theologian, Luther calls a theologian of the cross, is the one who recognized the naked man on the cross, dying a shameful death at the hands of his enemies, and is able to confess that one is God. 
See, we have a twofold lesson from this passage today. How do we see Jesus as the servant king? And how do we see ourselves as his followers, followers of the servant king? This passage is all about Jesus. He is the son of God. He is the beloved of the father. It is he who brings in the kingdom of God. He is the kingdom of God. To see him in glory is to see the kingdom of God in power. He eternally possesses the radiance of the glory of God because he is the exact representation of God's being, as the writer of the Hebrews tells us. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he is revealed as the one who is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. He is the one who is greater than the, the, the law and the prophets, as represented by Moses and Elijah. He is the fulfillment of all that the law and the prophets expected. Uh, everything that God said, whether through the law or through the prophets, before was partial. The fullness of God's revelation of himself is found only in his son. See, the book of Revelation begins with a vision that is similar to what uh, the disciples saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, and it ends in chapter 22 with the words that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In other words, Jesus is fully God, and he's the King of glory. See, but the instruction that emerges from this mountaintop experience is not that the disciples see him for what he is, but that they listen to him. What is it that he says about himself that they ought to listen to? He says that as king, he's also the servant who will suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. The king is the servant who will suffer shame, rejection, and the horrifying death at the hands of his enemies and be killed and after three days rise again, vindicated by the father. See, for Peter, that the Messiah, the king, is also the suffering servant is incomprehensible. If he is king, he can't be servant. But that's the world's way of thinking, a satanic rejection of the way of God. The suffering servant and the glorious son are the same person. See, the brief revelation of the glory of Christ the glory that he eternally possessed, the glory that was veiled in his incarnation, the glory to which he returns at his exaltation, that glory is real. However, the pathway to the public acknowledgement of that glory is through his obedience even unto death on the cross. And because he walked that path through the cross to glory, those who put their faith in him and follow him are his disciples. And they too will suffer like he did but they're also assured of the same glory. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, that as his followers, we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. To follow Jesus is to share in his sufferings that we may share in his glory. So what does it mean to follow Jesus, the servant king? Uh, if we are following Jesus, then we walk along the same path that he trod, through the cross to glory. If we are followers of Jesus who listen to him, we will heed his call to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. But just let's face it, let's be honest, each one of us, we crave glory over suffering, don't we? We may cringe at Peter's actions of rebuking Jesus when he reveals his, measure, his, his mission as Messiah uh, was to suffer and die and rise again, or when Peter seeks to perpetuate glory and avoid the cross by pitching tents on the mountain. But if you're honest, you know, none of us are really wired for suffering as a default way of life. See, even in our gospel presentation, uh, we speak of heaven someday. How often do we present the gospel as an invitation to 
follow Jesus by denying oneself and taking up the cross and following him. Yes, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and what he has accomplished. But we are saved to be his people. We are saved to be his disciples, people who listen to him. That means hearing him and obey him. People who obey all that he has commanded us to do. Uh, and if we do that, that inevitably leads us on a pathway to glory, but through the way of the cross. So you want to run a test to see if we prefer glory and skip over the cross? Do we expect our churches to be perfect and always growing? Fellowship, right hand of fellowship every Sunday for a dozen people. Uh, do we seek uh, political, social, and cultural significance as the sign of a thriving church in a culture? Or do we insist that the world behaves in ways that are according to our values, where we feel safe and comfortable? Do we see God at work only when all things in life are proceeding according to our expectations? Do we seek our security in, in a well-ordered society where our rights and our privileges are honored? Do we seek to return to some glory day when uh, we were all great? All these may seem good and desirable, and they are, but they may very well be indicative that we are people who crave glory and reject the way of the cross. Recently, Jack Meter uh, published an article in The Atlantic. Uh, Atlantic is not Christian, but Jack Meter is. An article that said, the misunderstood reason millions of Americans stopped going to church. He argues that one of the reasons that uh, for the rampant uh, de-churching that we find in our country is because he writes, contemporary America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. Rather, it is designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's professional life or as one ages, the professional prospects of one's children. And sadly, the church has followed broader culture in its glory-seeking instead of cross-bearing, self-denying community that it ought to be as followers of Jesus. Mises Meter writes, the tragedy of the American churches is that they have been so caught up in the same world that we now find they have nothing to offer these suffering people that can't be more easily found somewhere else. American churches have too often been content to function as a kind of vaguely spiritual NGO, an organization of detached individuals who meet together for religious services that inspire them, provide practical life advice, or offer positive emotional experiences. Too often, it has not been a community that through its preaching and living bears witness to another way of life. But don't despair. Where the church finds itself, Meter says it's a place that is hopeful and helpful. He writes, the great de-churching could be the beginning of a new moment for churches, a moment marked less by aspiration to respectability and success, with less focus on individuals aligning themselves with American values and assumptions. We could be a witness to another way of life outside conventionally American measures of success. Churches could model better, truer sorts of communities, one in which the hungry are fed, the weak are lifted up, and the proud are cast down. Such communities might not have money, success, and influence that many American churches have so often pursued in recent years, but if such communities look less like those churches, they might also look more like the sorts of communities Jesus expected his followers to create. In other words, when the church realizes that its pathway to glory 
is through the cross of self-denying, other-centered, sacrificial love, we have a witness to the world. We resemble our Lord who did not come to be served, but to, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, yes, the glorious kingdom of God will be established in its fullness when the Lord returns. Meanwhile, we walk along the way of the cross, denying ourselves for the sake of others, forgiving those who have wronged us, caring for the least among us, and renouncing worldly power. Will we listen to him? Will we follow the servant king? Will we walk in the way of the cross to the glory that will be ours? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that in Jesus Christ we are yours. We can't imagine anything more glorious than that. But because we are yours and because we belong to the Lord Jesus as his disciples, his followers, you call us to walk as he did, denying ourselves, bearing the cross and following him so that even through us you bear witness to your son and draw people to yourself so that they too may be saved and that they too would share in your glory when all creation will stand before you in worship. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we already have and the promise that we will share in his glory. And when we suffer for the sake of his name, help us to see that that too is according to your will. And that too is a following after Jesus. And that we too will be glorified. And that as Peter tells us in his epistle later, that this glory, that in sharing in his suffering, we are also assured of the sharing in his glory. Thank you that you will do this. We ask in the name of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org slash give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.